All right, so why are we saved? We're saved for God's glory, aren't we? Isn't that the theme of Exodus? Everything is done for the glory of God. And we, we must remember that Exodus is all about God. He rescues the people for himself. And uh, everything is for God's glory. As a matter of fact, when we look at the book of Exodus, what we should be able to do is look to Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's what it is. The Bible says he's the manifestation. He's a radiance of the glory of God. If we want to know who God is and what he is like, we look to Jesus Christ. And so the same God in the pillar is the same God who walked by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's the same person. It's all about the glory of Christ. And that's what I want us to do today. As you turn to Exodus chapter number 20, we're going to go through almost three chapters of Exodus today. So hang on, folks, because it's, it's going to be a good ride. Now, the first 20 chapters of Exodus are quite a wild ride, aren't they? You think about everything that happened in 20 chapters. The narrative, really, it's, it's fast-paced and it's riveting. And I don't know about you, but it's fun reading, isn't it? It's, it's, it's fun reading everything that happens. Now we come to the section of Exodus that all the preachers skip. And you skip in your Bible reading, too. Admit it, right? It's all the regulations. It's, the, it's actually the application of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's more or less, uh, I don't know what the appropriate term is, case law. Is that the right word for it? Um, the, the, these are the if-thens and that sort of thing that's going on. This is a very practical section where we, we learn how to live with one another. And I know what you're thinking. If you read this, you're thinking to yourself, I have not recently been tempted to boil a goat in its mother's milk. <laughs> so what's up with that? We'll talk about that. We'll, we'll refer to that. But we're going to go through the section quickly. But we're going to find it's very practical. And I think what you're going to find in this is the, the very heart of God. The very heart of God for his people and God's heart. We're going to see through this is very concerned about the most vulnerable of society. It, it's very fascinating to see. And so you think about this, you have 2 million people plus living close together, living in community brings plenty of opportunities for misunderstandings, for foul play, for general all-around drama. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, the closer you are, the greater the temptation is, all that sort of thing. How many of you have ever had a college roommate? You've had college roommates, right? Or maybe even a roommate, like an apartment roommate or something like that, right? Well, is there drama when that's involved? You're saying to yourself, I'm a guy, there's no drama. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. I remember when I was in college, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, college, I was 900 miles away from home when I was in college, and uh, I missed my mom's cooking, and my mom would send these care packages every now and then. I don't know if you ever got those when you're in college. They got these care packages. My mother, her, her cinnamon rolls were legendary. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, you might remember I went to a funeral in Bowling Green at the end of July. That was to one of my close friends in high school. His, his mother passed away. And while I was there, now this is 35 years later, he mentions my mom's cinnamon rolls. That's how good they were. And I got this care package, and I had cinnamon rolls. And I had a roommate. And I won't give you his name. But um, I saw, when I got those cinnamon rolls, I thought, 
yeah, I'm going to give a few away, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat like one at a time. I'm one of those guys, like if I get chocolate for Christmas, it's still there usually in March because I just eat a little bit at a time. I'm that kind of a person. And I remember um, uh, my roommate was um, a keen, uh, keen to the, uh, the cinnamon rolls. And um, one night I came back to the room. I'd been working. I'd missed supper, and I was a little bit hungry. And so I had some stuff. I thought, I'm going to have some of my mom's cinnamon rolls. I got up in my cabinet. They were gone. <laughs> yes, my roommate ate them. I mean, a bunch of my mom's cinnamon rolls. <laughs> so there was drama in that room. So Exodus uh, 20 through 23, where we're going to look, is all about what happens when somebody eats your mom's cinnamon rolls, okay? But before we, what we're going to learn, there's two things we're going to see in this section, how to love God and how to love others. And so we're going to learn initially what it means to, learn, to love God. Let's stand together and we're going to read some scripture, beginning in Exodus 22, or 20, verse number 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the, children, the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Think about that one. God talked with them from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, in your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now think about that. Here's this God, the God of the universe, the God that speaks to him from heaven. He said, hey, when you build an altar, make it out of dirt. Make it out of uncut stones. What, what's up with that? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Let, let's keep reading. If you make me an altar of stone, you should not build on it hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Lord, I, th I thank you for scripture. And uh, this is a, a difficult section to, to, to really think about and meditate on and be drawn to Christ in and seeing Christ in it. But I pray that today that we will see Christ and we will be uh, thankful that you have a heart to protect the most vulnerable of society as well as your own holiness and your own glory and that um, all of us have uh, the same standing before you because we're made in your image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. So here we have the application, basically the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall know the gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And um, God is telling the Israelites here that we love God by offering true and simple worship. And the way we do it is to avoid idolatry. Now, one of the principles that we have learned in this, as I've already mentioned, is that we are saved for God's glory. And we've seen this over and over, that whenever the, the Israelites saw a new experience of God's saving grace, whether it was the plagues, whether it was the crossing of the Red Sea, or whatever it was, they always responded in praise. And knowing people as well as he does, the Lord reiterates the first two commandments by reminding them not to make gods of silver and gold. Now we tend to want to skip over this, but if it's important enough for God to remind them, then it's important enough for us to think about the sin of idolatry again. 
And we need to hear this warning, and we need to hear it again and again, because we, just like they, are tempted to worship false gods. Or to put it another way, let me put it in today's language, ready? We are tempted to fill our, the space of our lives with everything that's not God. That makes sense? Okay? We fill our lives with space, the space of our lives that God ought to occupy with something different. So how do you identify your own idols? You identify your own idols by asking some of these questions. What am I hoping for? What do I really, really hope happens in my life or happens to my, my family's lives? Or um, what am I counting on? What will disappoint me if I don't get it, right? What gives my life meaning? If I don't do X, my life has no meaning. Where do I get my sense of worth? Where do I evaluate myself compared to other people? Well, my sense of worth, I'm a little bit better because I'm not like so-and-so who they do X or whatever. What am I thinking about all the time? What occupies the thinking of my mind? What am I working for? What are, what are the goals of my life? What makes me feel good about myself? Man, your hair looks really good today. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what it is. Um, where do I turn when I need comfort? Do you turn to escapism? Do you, do you turn to workaholism? Well, what do you turn to when you need comfort? Do you turn to a specific person that's not God? These are questions that we need to keep asking over and over because it's easy for us to manufacture other gods, the, the, to depend upon something that is not God, the lesser deities that we love and serve, and we all have them, don't we? They're always intruding upon our lives. The idols that the Israelites constructed out of gold and silver, they, they, they were something to look at. Now, now remember this. They came out of a pagan culture. They didn't know a whole lot about God. And so they obviously, it's, in the Pentateuch, it's made known, they had the deities that the Egyptians served. And they're going into uh, the land of Canaan where the Canaanites had all kinds of different uh, gods, whether it was Baal, the Asheroth, or others. And so what the, the pagans would do is they would create these very ornate, and I know you've seen pictures of these gods, right? Very ornate, very intricately carved. And they wanted their God to be something to look at. Well, they were like us. They were attracted to glitzy things and to glam and to flashy things. Aren't we attracted to that? We are. Would you rather drive a Yugo or, or take your pick, a Honda? Some of you are saying neither one of those. So, <laughs> Look, if somebody offered me a Corvette or a Yugo, I'm going to obviously take the Yugo. So I would never take a Corvette. Don't ever offer me one. I would never. Now, we're, we're tempted to laugh at the ancient pagans for their primitive worship. We wonder how anyone could bow to, to an idol made of silver and gold. But is it any less ridiculous that we spend our time on our phones compulsively watching videos 
compulsively watching uh, or uh, on social media. We're constantly checking our phones, and it's not just teenagers. It's all the way up. People in their 50s and 60s always have their phone. I'm guilty, right? We get caught up in, in whatever the flashy things of life are, and when that happens, our spiritual life suffers. We have a down minute. Rather than meditating on the Lord, we're checking Instagram. We're Snapchatting. We're checking Twitter. What's the latest political brouhaha on Twitter? What's my person who says the most inflammatory things on Twitter? What are they saying now? What's the news say? And, and so we have these down minutes where we could be maybe meditating on something we read in the Bible, and instead we fill our minds with whatever the screen has. Is that any different than the Israelites? We, we find it hard to devote ourselves to prayer and study God's Word. We have trouble concentrating on spiritual things. We lose our appetite for communion with Christ. Christ becomes less attractive than whatever we can find on our screen. Videos are very easy to watch. Text is very hard to read and to, to think through. We would rather be entertained than worship. And so, for our own spiritual good, look at verse number 23. God says, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Don't make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. And so we have to be very careful about the idols that we worship. There's an important theological principle here, and that is this. God is not the kind of deity who can adequately be represented in the form of an idol. That, that's why you, there is no, there's no picture of Christ in this auditorium. Because a picture or a paint, I said picture, you know what I mean, painting, right? They didn't have Kodak back then, but uh, a painting. Because any representation of a deity, any representation of Christ that you put, it can only have maybe one or two characteristics of, of that deity there. And um, we're going to see in, in a minute... We're going to refer to this, but I'm going to go ahead and just say it now. The, the, the representation of God that people are supposed to see is you. You are made in the image of God. And so God's glory, God is imaged through the lives of his own people. Because only a human, only someone who has been made in God's image can display the multifaceted characteristics of God. And as a matter of fact, no one here can do all of them. All of us together can't even do it all, but you see it in the gifts. God has all the spiritual gifts. You've only got a few, but all of us together make up a lot of the spiritual gifts, don't we? You see? And so that's, that's why we don't have uh, images of God or, or uh, good shepherd windows or whatever else you want to say, stained glass, whatever, because we are the ones to image Jesus Christ. The second thing that God says here is that we should be worshiping in simplicity. He told them, hey, make your altar out of dirt. Yeah, I want to go worship with Israel because their altars are dirt. Stones, unhewn stones. Why is this? It's because God wanted to keep his people from worshiping like the pagans. Making altars out of square blocks. Building step pyramids. 
And what else they did is they worshiped naked. Okay? These practices were common in Mesopotamia. These promises, these were, were common with the Canaanites as well. The, the Canaanites built altars on finished stones. They built them very high for show. And although uh, we no longer build altars for sacrifice, here, there are some principles here for us to apply. And one is this, that God alone has the right to determine how he's to be worshipped. Right? He, he determines that. He determines how he's going to be worshipped. You know, in the church, in the United States, there is a tendency to equate the quality of worship with the quality and the flashiness of the show. They want to manufacture an emotion. So they use smoke machines and they use lights. And, and the music has to be a certain kind of music. To, and the musicians have to be, man, they have to be dead on every time. They have to be just like American Idol or whatever the shows are that are on TV. But what God says instead, and this is so important, our worship should be simple. You know what the worship was of the ancient church? It should be the same as ours. There was Bible reading. There was prayer, there was the preaching of the God's word, and there was singing of hymns and songs together. And then they had uh, sacramental ordinances, whatever you, your tradition happens to call them, of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. Simple, isn't it? Very simple. And so what God requires from us is worship. And these simple things in worship, nothing should be done for show. But here's the amazing thing, and this is, this is I wish I, I could preach a whole sermon on the next couple, uh, this next point here, because this is so, so good. I want you to see verse number 24, back up to verse number 24, because worship is made possible through sacrifice. He says this, he says, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and the sacrifice on it, what are they to sacrifice? Burnt offerings, peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In everywhere, in every place, I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. There's two offerings mentioned here, and they are so important. The first offering is the burnt offering. Okay, the burnt offering, in the burnt offering, this entire sacrifice was burnt with fire. The burnt offering was a, an offering of atonement. It, it paid for sin. In this offering, a person placed their hand on the head of the animal being sacrificed so that they identify with that animal, and then its throat was slit, and some of the blood was collected, and then the whole animal was put up, and the whole animal was burned completely. The idea was that the, the, the smoke rising up was incense was like prayer to the Lord and it was showing the one who deserved to die was the one who was slitting the throat of the animal. The one who deserved to die was the one who placed that animal in the fire. The animal was a replacement for the person who made the sacrifice. It was usually a goat, goat or a lamb. Died in the sinner's place. But God accepted this atonement, didn't he? 
And then the second sacrifice was known as the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And what it did, it showed what kind of relationship God had with his people at atonement. Once atonement had been made, then there was fellowship with the God who made the earth, you see. And so there's atonement, and then there's fellowship. The fellowship offering was a tangible reminder that the people were no longer separated from God, but had fellowship with with, uh, God. And so in recognition of this, and this is so important, what they did is they took the, the most excellent portion of the offering and they put it on the altar, and that was the fat. The fat was the, the best part, and they put it up there. The fat gave the meat flavor, didn't it? It does, doesn't it? You, you like the fat. And <laughs> you don't want 100% lean steak. They're terrible. You want meat with a little marbling in it when you eat your steak. Anybody hungry? Because I'm kind of hungry, right? But listen, then that where, where with the atonement, the whole offering was burnt to a crisp. With the fellowship, the best part was given to God. And then you roasted the rest of that offering and made the meat nice and tender. And then you ate it. And it was a meal with God. The peace offering was a meal with God. Isn't that wonderful to know? There's atonement, and in the atonement, there's repentance, and there's forgiveness, and once the forgiveness is offered, then there is reconciliation and fellowship. I referred to this, by the way, in the last couple of church emails. Have you, did you realize that, right? That's the, that's the, the um, burnt offering and the peace offering, atonement. And forgiveness comes, and then there is a relationship of fellowship and reconciliation. Now, both of these offerings point to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ was the burnt offering. Christ is the peace offering. It's through Christ that we have peace with the Father, isn't it? Christ was a mediator who suffered the law's penalty in our place. And here we, dis- we, we see another way to describe his work. When Jesus was crucified, he was the atoning sacrifice on the altar of God. He is the burnt offering that made atonement for our sins, as well as a fellowship offering that reconciled us to God. And so this is all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Wonderful, isn't it? I think so many times we take fellowship with God for granted. We, we take atonement for granted. And it, was, it was made at a, a, at a terrible cost. And now we have a feast with Jesus. And the burnt offerings, if you think about it, in the New Testament, um, there, there's, uh, we are the, the bride of Christ, and they call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, that's the signifying the fellowship that we have with God now. There's a burnt offering in the Old Testament. Marriage Supper of the Lamb in the New Testament. Now, the second thing that God told him uh, instruction on is how do you love another person? In other words, how do you love the people sitting around you right now? Okay? And that's what we're going to go through beginning of chapter 21. I hope you read this section because I'm only going to refer to verses, read a few of them, and we're going to move through this very quickly. The first thing you do is you love male slaves. Okay, 
Remember that this section was not written directly by the finger of God on stone. Remember that. Only the Ten Commandments. Only the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. If you look, if you, if you want to see this, you go forward to Exodus 24, and I believe it's verse number 4, or 14, I think it's 4. It says, Moses recorded all these words. And so here we have Moses pen on parchment writing these instructions down and the implication is that these things that follow do not bind with the same eternal force um, somehow they're less fundamental and that's what that explains why we don't follow these laws to the very letter we follow the ten commandment but we don't follow these laws to the very letter they didn't address every situation as i said before but rather they gave Israel guidance so the judges would know how to rule in similar situations when somebody takes your mom's cinnamon rolls and eats them. So God immediately applied the Ten Commandments by showing them how to love the most vulnerable in ancient societies, that is, slaves, women, and children. They always got the short end of the stick, whether it's the vaunted uh, Hammurabi's um, um, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, times or the Canaanites or the Egyptians women slaves and children were always the lowest in society they didn't have the same rights and what God is going to show here is that everybody is on an equal plane when it comes to this because everybody is made in the image of God and he goes directly to the most vulnerable look at verse number one and two Exodus 21 says this now these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. And you're scratching your head saying, okay, now what is this whole slavery thing is about? Because we're not for slavery, right? Well, the answer is that this is not like the American form of slavery at all, okay? This is like indentured servanthood, and it was actually for the good of the community. A slave worked hard in exchange for room, board, and an honest um, wage. In fact, the American form of slavery was forbidden. The form of slavery that came from our founding um, was forbidden. And you can see that. Look at chapter 21, verse number 16. Look at what God says there. Whoever steals a man and sells him. Isn't that exactly what happened with American slavery? And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That form of slavery deserved the death penalty in Israel. Now let's go back up and let's unpack what are we talking about with this servanthood that's mentioned here in Exodus 21, uh, 1 through 6. Well, this form of slavery usually happened when somebody had no financial resources and was destitute or they had a lot of debt. And their whole family was on the verge of collapse if something didn't happen. And what they did is they sold themselves into slavery for, the Bible says here, six years. The slave worked for six years and then went free. Furthermore, the slave didn't leave empty-handed. Later on in Deuteronomy, you find that he tells them when the slave leaves, you give them money, you give them possessions, you give them as much as they need to get a good start. 
It doesn't say it quite like that, but that's, that's, the, that's the implication from it. It was benevolent. It's helping a person out in a difficult time. And also, unlike un- American slavery, it preserved the sanctity of the family. Look at verse number three. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, verse number four says, If a master gave, his, gave a man a wife, then the husband and then the husband left alone. Now you're thinking to yourself, that sounds really cruel. He gives him a wife and then he leaves. Remember, she most likely is under the same obligation of a six-year slavery. So what was a man to do? Well, God made provision for that. Uh, she couldn't just up and leave before her term expired. The husband had three choices. A, he could wait. B, he could get a good job and purchase her freedom. Or C, he could commit to permanent slavery for his master, indentured servanthood, and make it permanent. And so you have those three conditions. It still preserved the family. She was still free to go once her term was up, but she couldn't leave with him until her term was up, unless he, he purchased her, redeemed her, or he just went to work for the master. Does that make sense? It's not a cruel thing whatsoever. Now, verses 7 to 11, you love others by loving female slaves as well. Look at verse number 7. When a man sells his daughters a slave, she shall not go out as the male slave does. Uh Uh-oh. Now we got a problem. What is going on with the ethics of this man who's selling his daughter into slavery, right? No, it's not what it is. It's not harsh like it sounds. Why would God allow men to sell their daughters into the service of another? I'll say this, it's hard to know the cultural history behind this, but what a father could be doing is trying to improve her prospects for marriage. And so he gave his daughter, a poor man could give his daughter to a rich home in hopes that she would become part of that family. According to verse number 9, she could even be designated for the master's son. Now, what this did for the daughter is it offered her protection in three different ways. Number one, and you can read this in these verses. I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to summarize. One, if it didn't work out, the family could ransom her so that she would not be sold to foreigners. Okay? Number two, if she became engaged to one of the sons, she was to be treated like a daughter. In other words, she would have the full rights of a free citizen. So you give your daughter to this rich man as a servant or a slave, and uh, she becomes engaged to one of the sons. Immediately she becomes a free citizen. The third thing that we see here is if the engagement ended for whatever reason, then the man, the, the, the person that she was engaged to, had the duty of providing food and clothing and marital rights to her. So she, wasn't, she didn't leave empty-handed. Um, she left with provisions so that she wouldn't starve to death. In ancient cultures, a, person could ver- a woman could very easily starve to death if her husband died or she was divorced. That is one of the reasons why Ruth stayed with Naomi, isn't it? To provide for her. Naomi couldn't provide for herself, and so Ruth helped out here. God loves 
his daughters and wants them to be treated lovingly and, fair, and, and fairly as well. Now, the third thing that they were to do is to display loving behavior. That's as verses 12 to 32. Now, what does this loving behavior look like? Let's, let's uh, look at what loving behavior is. Number one, in terms of punishment, the punishment should fit the crime, and we're going to talk about homicide first. Now, verses 12 to 14 deal, deal with murder and the consequences uh, of murder or capital punishment. You see that in verse number 12 and verse number 14, right? If you murder somebody, uh, it's capital punishment. But verse number 13, sandwiched right in the middle, addresses accidental homicide. For example, you accidentally run over somebody with your cart. Or um, you're working with a tool and the head of the axe flies off and kills someone. Or something to that, you're digging in a, a pit and the pit collapses on someone. Th that was a different, that was, that was protecting, the protection for the guilty was flee fleeing to a city of refuge. And um, I won't say a lot about this, but in Israel when they settled, there were six cities of refuge. Three on either side of the, of the Jordan River that a manslaughterer could flee to for judgment and it protected him from the family. This, by the way, made Israel different than all the other cultures of the day. You died no matter what in the other cultures of the day. In the other cultures, there was no protection of the manslaughterer at all. The death penalty was not invoked out of indifference for human life, the death penalty was invoked for the glory of God. And I want to show you this. I told you I was going to refer to this. Take your Bibles. Hold your finger here. We're going to go to one verse. Go to Genesis 9 and verse number 6. This is God's instructions to Noah after the, um, after the worldwide flood. And in Genesis 9 and verse number 6, God said this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed why? Why is there capital punishment? Because God made man in his own image. And to kill another person is to kill an image bearer, right? Whatever you think of the death penalty, realize that murder is a direct assault on the image of God. And in some cultures, particularly the ancient ones, they taught that some um, lives were more valued than others. Hammurabi's law code very specifically lays out the penalty of if you kill a nobleman, it's way different than if you kill a slave. And God said, no, that doesn't fly uh, in, my, in my economy. Everybody's an image bearer, and my glory deserves to be protected. And so for um, uh, the, fa the, the, image of God, the glory of God, an image bearer <coughs> whose life is lost requires a life. And so every human life is of the same value. There's also protection from par for parents in verses 15 to 17. Look, um, there, look at verse number 15, 21 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. All right. Now, what are we talking about here? Does this mean if you um, smack your dad or smack your mom, you're going to get the death penalty? The word for strike there is, is an extreme form. It literally means beating a parent down, 
almost to the point of death. If you were that violent with one of your parents, you deserve death. Then verse number 17, look at verse number 17, where he says, anybody who curses his father and mother shall be put to death. Now the word curse is not a one-time fit of rage where you hurl curse words at your parents. That leads to disrespect to your parents. Literally, this is a total repudiation of their authority and a complete failure to take care of your parents. If your parents are in old age during those days and you are not taking care of your parents, you deserve to die. Protection for the elderly, right? Elderly protections right there in, in this. Now verse number 16 calls for the death penalty for kidnapping and selling a person. You know, did you know it's estimated worldwide there are 27 million people in slavery? Think about that number, 27 million. Let me give you an even more staggering number. Of those 27, 2 million of them, over 2 million of them are children. And these 2 million are exploited for the sex industry. We're already seeing it, and if you've read the news or anything in Afghanistan, it's happening right now in Afghanistan where the Taliban, they're kidnapping all unmarried girls and sending them to the front line for marriage to the soldiers. It's a horrible, horrible evil that's going on. And so God is completely against that, that sort of, of slavery and that sort of kidnapping. And so they deserve the death penalty. Now look at verses 18 to 27. We love our neighbors by our, uh, paying restitution for injuries, um, life-threatening injuries and permanent injuries. And so we, hear, we see here another example where the punishment fits the crime. For example, let's say two men get into a brawl, all right? And the loser of the brawl doesn't die. Now, if you were like me when I was younger, I was always on the losing end of that. When I, you know when I graduated from high school, I was this height and 145 pounds? Yeah, so you know how any kind of a uh, scuffle went in my day. But uh, if two men brawl and the loser didn't die, the winner of the fight had to pay for the loss of time and had to pay um, that the, the loser uh, was off work until he was healed. Right? Verse number 22, when a pregnant woman was struck in such a way that induced labor, there was a good chance of either injury or death for both. If there was no injury whatsoever, they still paid a fine. Why? Because it was a rash and violent act had threatened two of the most vulnerable people in society, a mother and her unborn child. See, God cares. I want to say it again. God cares for the most vulnerable in society. The law demanded a fine to show that the weak deserve special care. And this is very unlike the cultures around them. This is almost the opposite of the cultures around them. However, look at verse number 23. Verse number 23. But if there is harm, you shall pay 
life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Oh, man, that sounds pretty, pretty cruel, doesn't it? Eye for eye, law for law, and so on and so forth. Let me just say this. That is a lot less severe than other cultures. The cultures around them, if you poke somebody's eye out or knock somebody's tooth out, uh, they, could, they, they were allowed vigilante justice, and it could be up to killing you. And so the, the God is protecting against this. This is known as uh, lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Um, and, and so God said, look, it's got to be equal. Whatever the punishment is, it has to be equal to the p- crime. Makes sense, doesn't it? And so Lord put a safeguard in place for excessive revenge. Not only this, but it was to be done through appointed judges. So there was no such thing in Israel as vigilante justice. Uh, an individual could not take out vengeance against the people that hurt them. Only the authorities had this right. Furthermore, in the case of personal injuries, penalties were not allowed to be excessive. Usually when people were, got hurt, they would want the person who injured suffered more than them. We all want that, don't we? Um, just think about goofing around. I don't know if you've ever had your, your yard, um, we call them rolled. You ever had your lawn rolled with toilet paper? Up north, they call it TT, whatever. When I was a youth pastor, that would help, um, happen a lot. Remember one, you remember that one Labor Day, I think the second Labor Day that we were in, in Memphis, and maybe the third. I got this wonderful youth group. They, they love me so much, you know. And it's late on that Sunday night, and Heather and I, are, are sitting in our living room and the street light is shining in. Now we had our blinds pulled and I see this head with a ponytail go walking by. You remember that? Yeah. And so I, I thought, I looked at her and I said, those kids are outside trying to roll our yard or something. And so I, I ran out and scared them off and went back inside and I said, they're going to be back. So I filled up a bucket of water, and then I hid in her backyard, which was very dark, and waited. And sure enough, they came back. (laughs) The problem is, for them, not for me, is they had enticed their sweet oldest sister, sweet as can be, she would never harm a fly, can you drive us over, they call me Brother Jared, to Brother Jared's house so we can roll the yard. So here comes all these little criminals again, right? And when I see them, I come running with that bucket of water, and they run for the car. And I finally got close enough when I was near the car, and I threw the water, and her windows are down. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was very satisfying to me, because as far as I was concerned, the punishment was greater than the crime, and that worked. <laughs> but that was not Christ-like. The punishment is supposed to fit the crime. Now, I want to point out one more thing. It's very serious. If you look at um, these laws, you find that the fetus deserves special uh, protection because the fetus is a person. (laughs) The law of God imposed strict penalties on anyone who harmed an unborn child, and it treated the injury of an unborn child as it treated the injury of another human being. And so by this standard, um, performing an abortion is an act of murder. And the proper penalty according to verse number nine, uh, 23, is life for life. And so I'm going to put it very bluntly, and, and if I offend you, I'm sorry. 
by this standard, an abortionist deserves the death penalty according to God's standards because a fetus is a human life, not a mass of tissue. All right, so we're also to love the property of our neighbor. Verses uh, 21, 33 through chapter 22, verse number 15. I'm not going to spend much time on this other than to say the next set of ordinances are for events such as if somebody gets ripped off, uh, an irresponsible action, like if, you don't, if you're digging a pit, you don't cover it, and your neighbor's oxen falls in it. Um, if you don't control your animal, and, and they, your oxen gores a person, if your dog is known to bite people, then be responsible with your dog, and so on and so forth, breaking and entering. Um, all these cases, the laws appear sensible, and they help to solve disputes. Many cases, in the property disputes, the, the penalty demanded more than the value of the, uh, the crime, and the reason for that is the deterrent. You just don't give it back. You give more than what you stole, and it's the deterrent to crime. And what is noted here, if you note, there's no such thing as jail time. There's no jail time here. It's a, it's a direct deterrent against crime. Well, let's move on. Chapter 22, verse 16 through 20, we see also that uh, we love our neighbor by loving holiness. Look at verses 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, this is not the case of rape. Okay? The, the uh, it, rape is mentioned in Deuteronomy 22, and that is the death penalty. Okay? This is not that. The word translated seduces. See the word seduces in here? That word translated seduces means to persuade a girl and she consents. So this is a consensual act that we're talking about here. Here, the man had the responsibility to provide for the woman, both through marrying the woman and by paying her father. Now, God values purity, doesn't he? Today we live in a sex-saturated culture. Did you know that it's reported that more money is spent on pornography than is spent on pro baseball, pro basketball, and pro football combined? A lot of money is spent on pornography. And God calls his people to holiness. And in his love for holiness, God lays out uh, three capital crimes. I want you to see those in verses 18 to 20. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. These three sins, witchcraft, bestiality, and idolatry, are um, so ungodly, it's almost embarrassing to mention them, but they deserve the death penalty. So here's a question. How do we apply this in the covenant community? How do we apply this in the church today? Remember that these laws are given to protect the purity of the worship of the community of faith. You cannot worship God if you're worshiping an idol. You cannot worship God with all your heart if you're seeing a sorceress. The way that we apply them today is making sure that none of them are broken in the church. God always gives grace to sinners who repent, no matter what, no matter what they have done. But, a person who claims to be a, a Christian 
and practices sorcery or bestiality or out-and-out idolatry must suffer the penalty, the death penalty, if I can use that term. Christ is given today is what we would call excommunication from the church. Treat them as an unbeliever. Treat that person as an unbeliever by which unrepentant sinners are put out of the church. In the cases of scandalous sin, the honor of God demands that the faithful exercise uh, church discipline. And that's why when it comes to uh, adultery and all these other things that require the death penalty, we are commanded in Scripture to put these unrepentant people out of the church because God demands purity of worship. Well, I want to finish on a real positive note. This is, this is wonderful. Turn to chapter 23, verses 10 to 19. In verses 10 to 19, they lay out the Sabbath laws and three pilgrim festivals. Oh, I wish I could spend a lot. I wish I could spend a whole message on these, the Sabbath laws and the festivals, because uh, they are so important. The Sabbath is so important. You remember their Sabbaths. Um, there was a Sabbath every week, wasn't there? A weekly Sabbath. There was a, a Sabbath of years, and there was a Sabbath of Sabbaths as well. So what do I mean by that? Every six years was a Sabbath for the land. Every 49 years was a Sabbath, and then a, another year, a year of Jubilee. Remember that? And that's where everything reverted back to normal at the year of Jubilee. And the seventh year Sabbath is important to prophecy. Did you know that? It, it directly ties in the prophecy. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the interpretation of Daniel's 70 weeks depends upon your understanding of the Sabbath and the Jubilees. And if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong when it comes to the interpretation of prophecy. But the Sabbath was a creation ordinance, and it was to be deserve, uh, observed by land, by the animals, and by people. And according to verse number 12, it refreshes people. I want to talk about the three festivals very quickly, and then we're done. The three festivals. There were three major festivals in which males to, were to appear before the Lord at the place of the tabernacle or the temple. These are, we call them pilgrim uh, festivals. And so you remember uh, the, the three pilgrim festivals. Number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was in the springtime, right around Passover. And that, that pilgrim festival was co to commemorate their liberation from Egypt. And all the males were to travel to, the, the, to Jerusalem during Jesus' day, but before that to Shiloh when the tabernacle was in, in Shiloh. And so normally they would bring their families because they wanted their whole family to participate in it, didn't they? Then there was a feast of first fruits, which happened um, just very soon after that. And that was to celebrate God's provision. And they were, they were to give the first fruits of the harvest. They were to give the best to God. And then the Feast of the Ingathering. And it commemorated the, their salvation. We know it as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, if you have a King James Version, right? And that was when they, they lived in tents. And that, that celebrated the salvation of the Lord. And so... These, these three feasts were important. The blood of the sacrifices were not to be offered with leaven. Leaven 
uh, represented sin. And so getting rid of leaven represented giving rid of sin. The first fruits were to be used during the feast. The first and best of your harvest was given to God. God deserves the best. He doesn't deserve the leftovers. He deserves the best, doesn't he? And then the, 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 uh, the booths that the point us to uh, God's salvation, they ultimately, all of these feasts, they point us to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus liberated us from slavery. Jesus provides for all of our needs, and Jesus is the means of our salvation. Jesus is our Savior that God always planned to sin. So already in the Old Testament, God gave His people experiences that would help them understand the meaning of their salvation. And it helps us when we read the Old Testament. It helps us. It's a living illustration, a full-color illustration of the meaning of our salvation. Jesus is the source of our sanctification. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the water of life. He's the sacrificial lamb for our sin. And this is the gospel according to Moses in Exodus 23. Amen, right? Jesus deserves our worship. i got to mention this because if I don't, somebody's going to ask me about it. Because the very last verse in this section says, Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. What on earth does that mean? Nobody knows for sure. The best we know is that the Canaanites and the, the surrounding uh, vicinity, uh, peoples, well, that was a worship ceremony. And they worshiped pagan uh, gods by boiling a kid in its mother's milk. And so the Israelites were, were um, to refrain from doing that. The Jews ultimately took that and they made it the kosher laws. They, mis- they seemed to misunderstand it just like we misunderstand so much about Scripture, but I did want to say that. Well, there's so much. I know this is almost like reading an encyclopedia, but what else do you do in a passage like this? It's so important because all of this points to several things. Number one, it points to Jesus first and foremost, doesn't it? Number two, it shows us that we are saved for God's glory. And number three, it shows us that God cares for all His creatures And all humanity is an image bearer of God, and so therefore all humanity should be treated as equal value. And most of all, God cares for the most vulnerable in society, slaves, women, and children, including fetuses. Don't we serve a wonderful God? God loves us. And he, the Psalms, that even Psalm 145, God cares for his creatures. Lord, I thank you so much for the, the teaching of your word. The, the case laws are, are difficult to, to preach on, Lord. Nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning, Lord, saying, I hope pastor preaches on case law. But in them, we see so much about you. We see so much about your care and your love. We see so much about your desire for holiness, about how you want us to worship you in simplicity, not having any idols, not wanting to entertain ourselves with worship of you. And so, Lord, I pray 
that you will help us in, in these readings and in this preaching to just be drawn closer to Jesus, understanding that we don't practice these anymore because Jesus was the completion of all these things. And I pray that you will help us in, in our sanctification that we'll um, lean upon you and, and pray, Lord, and also work in becoming more and more like the Savior who bought us. He was our burnt offering, and he was our fellowship meal. So we can have fellowship with you forever and ever. Amen.